Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Good morning. I see you stand with me as we read God's Word. We're in John chapter 12, starting down at verse 32. John 12, 32. Jesus speaking says, But I, when I am lifted up from this earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Father, we thank you for your word today. I pray that we would all have fertile hearts today, that as your word grow, goes out, Lord, that it would find a good place in us, and it would, it would grow within us and change us and make us to be the people that you would have us to be. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. may be seated. In an interview with New York Magazine, Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia explained his beliefs about the reality of the devil. After mentioning his belief in a real heaven and a real hell, he interjected, I even believe in the devil. Surprised at this, the interviewer remarked, You do? Of course, yeah, he's a real person. Now, fully engaged, the interviewer asked, Have you seen evidence of the devil lately? Scalio replied, you know, it's curious. In the gospel, the devil is seen doing all sorts of things. He's making pigs run off cliffs. He's possessing people and whatnot. That doesn't happen very much anymore because he's smart. The interviewer asked, so what's he doing right now? Scalio said, what he's doing now is getting people not to believe in him or God. He's much more successful that way. The interviewer asked, Isn't it terribly frightening to believe in the devil? Scalia replies, You're looking at me as though I'm weird. Are you so out of touch with most of America, most of which believes in the devil? I mean, Jesus Christ believed in the devil. It's in the Gospels. But you travel in circles that are so far removed from mainstream America that you are appalled that anybody would believe in the devil. He finishes by saying, Most of mankind has believed in the devil for all of history. Many more intelligent people than you or I have believed in the devil. Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of John. This morning we're going to see that Jesus really did believe in a literal devil. And if we are smart, we will also. Look at verse 31 with me. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Jesus begins by using a word that is taboo in our society. He says that there is such a thing as judgment. 
That means that one day, everybody in this room will have to give an account of how they spent their lives while they were down here on planet Earth. But many people refuse to believe this. Concerning judgment, the great Puritan Richard Baxter wrote, When you find it in the Word of God, do you think yourselves fit to contradict His Word? Will you call your Maker to the bar, and will you set upon Him and judge Him by the law of your conceits? Are you wiser and better and more righteous than He? Must the God of heaven come to you for wisdom? Must the Almighty stand at the bar of a worm? O horrid arrogance of senseless dust! Shall every mole or clod or dunghill accuse the blazing sun of darkness and instead themselves undertake to illuminate the world? The thing is, my friends, today if we even mention the possibility of judgment, men will scoff at it. They argue the only hell that we shall know is the hell that we make for ourselves on earth. But the Bible says in Acts 17.30, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man that He has appointed. He has given proof to this to all men by raising Him from the dead. So I ask us, can we easily dismiss such doctrine? Allow me to say that if you don't actively study such things, it may surprise you to, under, to learn how wicked the thinking of the world is surrounding the possibility of any type of a future judgment. Many people say, what's the big deal? Why all this fuss about morality? Why is this even an issue? Why not simply accept the death of all morals? Well, let's just notice that were we to concede that morality is entirely subjective, that is, just dependent on human values, we'd at the very least would also have to give up the basic belief that horrific acts like rape, torture, and murder are wrong regardless of what we think or feel about that. As Princeton University ethicist Peter Singer says, without the notion of an independent moral reality to back them up, claims made on behalf of these moral rules or principles can no more be expressions or personal preferences which from a collective point of view should receive no more weight than any other preference. If you don't know about who Peter Singer is, he was once asked, if you were standing in front of a burning house where 200 pigs and a child were in there and you could either save the animals or the child, what would you do? Singer replies, the suffering of animals at some point is so great that you would have to decide to free the animals and not the child. Now whether this point is reached at 200 or 2 million animals, I do not know. But one must not burn countless animals in order to save a child's life. I have to wonder if his answer would be the same if that was his child in that burning building. 
But he not only believes that it is right to kill a baby, but sometimes it's actually wrong not to. Listen to his twisted thinking. He said, When the death of a disabled infant will lead to the birth of another infant with better prospects of a happy life, the total amount of happiness will be greater if the disabled infant is killed. The loss of happy life for the first infant is outweighed by the gain of the happier life of the second. Therefore, if killing the infant has no adverse effect on others, it would be, according to my view, be right to kill him. Let me rephrase that. What Singer is saying is basically quoting Judges 21-25, where we are told, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So you don't tell me what to do, and I won't tell you what to do. Now, if we truly believe that there were no moral absolutes, it's certain that all hell would break loose instead of just some of it. Mankind would then throw off what little restraints that are left. One more quote. Consider what serial killer Ted Bundy once said to a female reporter. He said... When I learned that all moral judgments are just value judgments, that all value judgments are subjective, and that none can be proved to be either right or wrong, and so there's no reason to obey the law for anyone, like myself who has the daring and the strength of character to throw off its shackles. I discovered that to be truly free, truly unfettered, I had to become totally uninhibited. Now what he says next is chilling. Why is it more wrong to kill a human animal than any other animal? A pig, or a sheep, or a steer? Why should I be willing to sacrifice my pleasure for more than one than for the other? In any case, let me assure you, my dear young lady, that there's absolutely no comparison between the pleasure I might take in eating ham and the pleasure I anticipate in raping and murdering you. That is the honest conclusion to which my education has led me after the most conscientious examination of my spontaneous and uninhibited self. When I read that, I thought, this is the logical outworking of what happens when every man does what is right in his own eyes. And yet God has remained patient and withheld his his judgment of wicked humanity for countless generations. Now God initially manifested his patience in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve first sinned, he could have ended the human race by immediately judging those two. Instead, he spared them, even allowing Adam to live for 930 years. And this established his long pattern of patience with sinners. Before his judgment of humanity because of the flood, we are told in Genesis these words, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth, and that every intent of his thought and of his heart was evil continually. The human race had become so evil that the Lord was sorry he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart, and he said, 
I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things and the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. Yet even in the face of this extreme provocation, God still withheld his judgment. Throughout human history, God has shown remarkable tolerance with entire nations of people who have rejected him. In Genesis 15:16, we are told that Ab- we are told Abraham that there would be a lengthy delay in judgment of the Canaanites because the iniquity of the Amorites had not reached its full measure. Jesus even told a parable illustrating God's patience toward his people. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even encumber the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. God is also patient with individual sinners. In Romans 2.4, Paul asks, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that it is the kindness of God that leads man to repentance? It is because of his patience that he has not yet returned in judgment. As the renowned preacher Charles Spurgeon stated in a sermon on God's long-suffering, long-suffering is what keeps him from coming. He is bearing with men, not yet the thunderbolt, not yet the riven heavens and the reeling earth, not yet the great white throne and the dead judgment, for he is very pitiful and beareth long with men. Even at the cries of his own elect who cried day and night unto him, he is not in haste to answer, for he is very patient, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy." Now notice at the end of the verse it does say Satan will be cast out. That means he is not completely cast out yet. Now there are some in the body of Christ who believe that we are already in the millennium, which is the thousand year reign of Christ. If this is the millennium, I am pretty disappointed. Because in the millennium, the devil will be chained. And if Lucifer is chained right now, honey, that is one long chain that he is on. And if Satan is the ruler of this world, which Jesus says that he is, that means that no amount of political maneuvering or binding him or Jericho marches or any kind of spiritual calisthenic is going to stop his influence. He will continue to rule this world for a time. Just watch CNN, which I heard one preacher call the Canaanite News Network. But one day Satan will be cast out. During the tribulation in Revelation 12:10, Satan will be permanently cast out of heaven to which he has had access to accuse believers. And at the end of the tribulation, Satan will be cast into the bottomless pit for the duration of the millennial kingdom. And finally, at the end of the millennium, 
Satan will be cast into the lake of fire where he will be punished for eternity. Verse 32, please. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. The people answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? When I first got saved, I was taught that verse 32 meant we were supposed to lift Jesus up in praise and adoration, and in doing that, people would be attracted to him. There's even a song that goes, Lift Jesus higher, lift him up for the world to see, for if I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. But that's not what that verse means. You're thinking another great song ruined by sound exposition. Jesus is speaking here of being lifted up on the cross, and that act will draw those who will repent and be saved. Actually, verse 33 is the commentary on verse 32. Once again, this shows us the importance of taking Scripture in its context and not just pulling verses out and applying meaning to them. But much as a serpent was lifted up on the pole, so the Son of God would be lifted up on a cross. Why? To save us from sin and death. Jesus declared that he will be by that means the sacrifice of sin and he will draw all men to himself. Now, this does not of course mean that all humanity is going to be redeemed. But there is a question we must ask of Christ's statement. Who does this historical crucified Jesus promise to draw? The answer is everyone. But we must understand that this is not a statement that can be quoted in support of universalism, which is the heresy that in the end all mankind will be saved. It is not a promise that every individual who has ever lived will come to Christ and be saved. If it were, it would not be true. For certainly many millions of people go through a lifetime and eventually die without coming to him. So it's not a promise that every individual will be one to Christ, but rather that all types of people from every level of life and every race and nation are going to come to him. Now the phrase also stresses that all who are saved are saved by believing in the work of Christ on the cross. There is no access to God apart from the cross because it's only through Christ's death is that sin is satisfactorily atoned for and divine forgiveness granted. Once again, we see that the cross of Christ is the great divider of all mankind. Really, if you think about it, Jesus is the great polarizer. It's as if humanity were all iron fillings laid out on a sheet of paper and Jesus is the magnet. Every single filing lines up either with the North Pole or the South Pole. In the same way, every person is either attracted to or repelled by the person of Christ because he is that magnet. The power and influence of his very being, though, cannot be ignored. The people then ask, who is this Son of Man? As I was preparing this message, when I read verse 34, this psalm popped into my head. You ask, who is this Son of Man? 
Allow me to let King David answer that from Psalm 24. He writes, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Verse 35, please. And Jesus said to them, A little while longer the light is with you. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. Who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke and departed and was hidden from them. Let's just be honest this morning. It's tough to be in the dark and not let the dark get into you. Kind of like it's good for a boat to be in the water, but it's not good for water to be in the boat. The unending struggle of the Christian life is to walk in the light and at the same time walk through a very dark world. Later in John 17, Jesus will pray this on our behalf. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Really, it comes down to this in the Christian life. We are not to be assimilated into the culture and its values, but nor are we to be isolated from the culture, living as a monk in a cave. Instead, Jesus prays that we will be insulated from the culture. In other words, we are to be in the world, but not of it. But the vast majority of humanity is going to prefer the darkness over the light. A website called The Experience Project describes itself as a place to share life experience from different people. The site has had over 36 million visitors. Visitors to the site are asked to share their thoughts about life experiences by answering questions like, What does loneliness feel like? Or who do you want to spend time with? Or what is your favorite pastime? In one post, readers are asked to respond to the following statement. I prefer darkness over light. A young woman going by the screen name Beyond Repair offered a particularly honest and insightful response. She writes, I prefer darkness over light. The darkness allows me to hide who I am and what I truly feel. In the light, all things have a chance to be revealed. Darkness makes it easier to hide. In the dark, you cannot see what is coming next. The darkness is a place where you can lose yourself. Lost in the dark is a great place to be, because then you are free from what you are and can be what you want. The darkness is bliss. I truly hope that that lady eventually meets Christ because if she doesn't, you could chisel these words from the Bible on her tombstone. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who, does, who is evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that their evil deeds will be exposed. 
And the bliss that she is now experiencing is kind of like the bliss that you get when you go to the dentist and they give you that lapping gas. When they give me that stuff, I wouldn't care if they pulled all my teeth out with a pair of pliers and took my spleen out with a butter knife. And so it's true enough that you are blissful and completely unaware that they are taking your wisdom teeth out with a hammer and a chisel. But once they are done and that gas wears off, the bliss is over and the pain begins. The big difference between that when the bliss of a painful life ends is that that pain and misery that follows lasts for an eternity. Jesus then tells them and us that we need to walk in the light. Now light is an ancient image of who God is. David writes in one psalm, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Again he says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we shall see light. Now this is significant because it is a teaching found throughout the gospel and is almost the first descriptive used to describe Jesus. Now the first description uses the word or logos. It occurs in verse 1 of our gospel where Jesus is the embodiment of the word. The second word would be life and him was life. But then as early as the fourth verse in the gospel, the term light occurs. It says, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Later, Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. And the last occurrence of the image will occur in John 12:46, in which Jesus cries out, I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in the darkness. Alexander McLaren has written, Rejected light is the parent of the densest darkness, and the man who having the light does not trust in it piles around himself thick clouds of obscurity and gloom, far more doleful and impenetrable than the twilight that glimmers round the men who have never known the daylight of revelation. Now, to call Jesus a light is not to deny that there are other lights, however misleading or imperfect that they may be. You see, man is made in the image of God, and in spite of the fall, some vestiges of that image remains. For instance, he aspires to good things. He desires peace, progress, and pro prosperity. And none of those things are bad in and of themselves. It's just that they are partial lights. They are good as far as they go, but they do not go far enough. They deal with just the externals, but they do not provide the inner satisfaction that all men need and so desperately crave. To call Jesus the true light is therefore to refer to him as that sole source of full illumination by which men and women can learn the truth about God and about themselves and enter to that close personal relationship to him in which we are all called. All this is involved in Christ's reminder that he is the light. We are then told in verse 36 that Jesus now departs and will now be hidden from them. This will mark the tragic climax of the Lord's public ministry to Israel. The sun of opportunity has set. God's patience is now at an end, and Jesus leaves them 
with a solemn warning. I go away and you will seek me and will die in your sin and where I am going you cannot come. By his withdrawal, his self-hiding from the people, Jesus is acting out the judicial warning he has just pronounced. Once again, McLaren provides an excellent sermon on this text, writes, He loves too well not to warn, but he will not leave the bitterness of threatening as a last savor on the palate and so the lips, into which grace is poured, bade farewell to his enemies with the promise and the hope that even they may still become sons of the light. As we finish up today, I can't possibly overstress the importance of our walking in the light. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he had became the father of Methuselah. And after he became the father of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Altogether, Enoch lived 365 years. But he began to walk with God in a special way when he was 65 years old. Now, I personally believe that's when he got the revelation of the coming judgment. He knew what was coming. He saw the ungodliness of the age in which he lived. He had believed in God before, but now he was determined to walk with God in the midst of this ungodliness. He walked and walked with God until God took him at age 365. Genesis simply records, Enoch walked with God and was no more. Now that was no casual stroll. 300 years is a long time. So what kept Enoch walking with God for 300 years? I think it was he had an awareness of the coming judgment. He had a sensitivity to the ungodliness of this age. And thus he drew nearer to God as the reality of these things were pressed upon him. Likewise, if we want to keep close to God, we will keep from sin. But if we sin persistently, even as believers... We will fall away from good fellowship with the Lord. And when that happens, we will normally just rename that sin. We will not talk about our pride. We'll call it self-esteem or self-worth or getting what is due me. We will not talk about gluttony and materialism. We'll talk about the good life. We'll not talk about disobedience. We'll talk about our shortcomings. We will not talk about moral failings. We'll just talk about our mistakes. It is only when we draw close to God that these things will become increasingly sinful and putrid in our sight. And a good way to start is to examine ourselves this morning before we take communion. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the light, and there is no darkness in you. And I thank you that you have drawn your followers out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Help us to live as children of the light. Help us to forsake anything or anyone that would draw us back into the darkness of sin. And let us live our lives proclaiming that you are the light of the world. For we ask this in your name. Amen.